Well, if you look at chapter 12 of Mark, you'll see there that there are quite a few uh, interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, and teachers of the law and scribes. They're trying to trip him up, and we have looked at several of those passages. Uh, he tells a parable there in chapter 12 about uh, that is really pointed at those uh, teachers of the law. But now, in this section, uh, Jesus goes on the offensive. Instead of being asked questions, he asks the questions. And it says here in Mark 12:35, As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, what Jesus is doing here in his interaction with the Pharisees, he's trying to help them uh, and the crowds understand the true nature of the Messiah, the Christ. It's the, same, the word means the same thing. Uh, both uh, the scribes and Jesus assert that this Psalm 110, which you can turn to now, they both assert that this is about the Messiah. And here Jesus is posing this question. Jesus asks, if David is the king of Israel, who in the world could he be calling my Lord in Psalm 110? And if this person is the Messiah, this person referred to in Psalm 110, uh, one of David's own descendants to whom he is speaking prophetically, down the line somewhere. Why in the world would he call one of his own grandchildren his Lord? That doesn't make sense. David's language is inappropriate. It's inexplicable if the figure being addressed is just a human being. But that's Jesus' point. It's not just a human being. See, the Jews at that time were expecting a Messiah, uh, a, a great king from David's line to come and rescue them from the Romans. They were looking for a military political hero. And Jesus is trying to help them understand that even the scriptures say that the Messiah was much more than that. A greater Messiah than the one that is popularly conceived in that day and whose triumph is going to be greater than simply a military political victory over the Romans. Jesus came for something much greater than that. Psalm 110 tells us about that. So both Jesus and the religious leaders of his day agreed that Psalm 110 was speaking about the Christ, the Messiah. So let's look at it now and see what kind of Messiah or Christ uh, is Jesus. And we'll take away a couple of points of application from Psalm 110, but let's read it and... Let me give you an explanation, and I'll read it this way so it's better, easier to understand. The word Lord is used several times, and this is the key to understanding this psalm. There are two different words here used for Lord. If you look at the, the Bible, uh, the first time it says Lord, it, says, it, says it has Lord in small caps. And when you see the word Lord in small caps... It's really uh, translating the term or the name Yahweh, God's covenant name. 
when, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and he told Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and, and free my children from slavery, uh, Moses asked, whom shall I say sent me to do this thing? And that's when God revealed his covenant name to Moses. He says, Yahweh, I am, is what it means. I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. So that's the, the, the first term, the Lord, is used there. But when it's just a regular written Lord, L-O-R-D, capital L, small O-R-D, it's the term Adonai, which can refer to any Lord or Master. That's what it means. So here in the Psalm of David, Psalm 110, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, David is saying, God in heaven is saying to this Christ, this one who's my Lord, Jesus, he's saying to Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in verse 5, David is speaking to God, the Father, and he's talking about Jesus. And he says this about Jesus. The Lord, Jesus, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, I think this psalm is a perfect follow-up to Easter. Uh, of course, last week we focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appeared to his disciples. We uh, heard about the empty tomb after those, the, that, that day. And for 40 days, he appeared to his disciples and other followers. And then, as we said in the Apostle Creed just a few moments ago, he ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick or the living and the dead. We just profess that. That's what this psalm is talking about. Now there are two points of application I want us to take from this psalm that speaks of Christ's ascension and reign in heaven. And the two points are this. First of all, we should take comfort that Jesus is seated. Take comfort that Jesus is seated and secondly, take heed that Jesus is returning. Take heed that Jesus is returning. Well, there are several reasons why we should take comfort, first of all, that Jesus is seated. It says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is seated, first of all, as king, and that's comforting. He is in the place of highest honor. He has been entrusted with absolute power, sovereign power, both in heaven and in earth. He is sitting there at the right hand of the Father in the most honorable position as king. He's reigning. God, the sovereign Lord, uh, has been proclaimed and decreed that by God himself. 
And he is David's Lord, as Jesus points out. David was the greatest king of Israel. Uh, You can look through the annals, the history of Israel. David was by far the greatest king. Solomon was a great king, but David was a man after God's own heart. And David uh, is the epitome of the kings of Israel. But here is one who is a greater king than even David. He is David's Lord. David bows the knee to this king. The great David uh, pays homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the greatest king. And that's what verse 1 is telling us. He's sitting in that place of highest honor. Verse 2 says, The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. See, again, he's a great king. He's ruling. His kingdom has been set up. And it will be maintained and kept up in the world in spite of all the opposition he receives from his enemies, from the powers of darkness that oppose his kingdom. He's ruling and reigning there. And he's doing that in the midst of his enemies. I love what Matthew Henry says about it. He says, Christ shall rule, shall give laws, and govern his subjects by them, shall perfect them, and make them easy and happy, shall do his own will, fulfill his own counsels, and maintain his own interests among men. His kingdom is of God, and it shall stand. His crown sits firmly on his head, and there it shall flourish. I love that last part. His his crown sits firmly on his head. Nobody can topple his crown off. Nobody can knock it off. It's there, it's firmly sitting, and it's going to flourish there. And it is flourishing there, even today. And he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. And that's why I wanted to share this with you today, because we have a lot of discouragement around us. We see the decline in our culture. We, we hear the news and we see the debates over the definition of marriage and we think, what is our world coming to? And that's just one example. It's easy to become discouraged and think that Christ is losing the battle, that the church is waning and, and is going to go away and is going to be conquered. But Christ is ruling in the midst of his enemies. They cannot defeat him. Uh, in heaven, he's surrounded by his friends. In Revelation 5, you can, you can read about how the worship is going on and people are singing his praises. But we who are the church here on earth, we, uh, are, we are worshiping his name as well and singing his praises, but we are doing so in the midst of his enemies. They fight against him. They hate him. They hate his ways. They hate righteousness. Christ's church is a lily among the thorns. His disciples are sheep in the middle of wolves. But all the malignant policies and powers of hell and earth cannot shake the rock on which the church is built. Christ said he will build his church and the gates of hell even cannot prevail against it. He's ruling. He's reigning. We can take comfort in the fact that he is a great king and he's ruling and reigning there. We can also take comfort in the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, not only as a great king, but as a great prophet. The Lord, it says, sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling. How does he rule? Well, he rules in our lives by conquering our hearts for himself. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. His rule and his reign is is over your heart. He captures the hearts of people who were once his enemies and he makes them his followers, his loyal subjects. 
And he does so by his word going forth, the gospel. It's going out into the world, and people all over the world are submitting to that. They're crying out to Jesus to save them, to be their Savior, to be their Lord. And that's why the missions conference is so important. We look around us at all the discouragement and we think, wow, the church is losing members, they're losing ground, Uh, we feel inadequate. How do we reach out into this world that has rejected Christianity that we live in? But the Lord is building His church all over the world. And a missions conference is an opportunity for us to hear how He's doing that in other parts of the world. There are places where the gospel is flourishing, where the church is growing, and the Lord is going to build his church. He's conquering people's hearts. People are bowing the knee to him on a daily basis. They're coming to faith in him. He has followers. He's conquering them in spite of all the enemies that are arrayed against him. And he says, the the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The scepter is a symbol of his rule. And it's going forth from Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. And if we look back at church history, that's where his rule began. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples and they proclaimed the gospel and thousands came to faith in Christ. And from Jerusalem, the church spread throughout the world. And it became a mighty force to where it's the greatest religion in the world. And it is going to continue to grow and become stronger always. Nothing can stand against it in spite of all the enemies that are around. So it started in Zion. It's moving out into the world. And he has followers, verse 3 tells us, uh, who have offered themselves freely. They've given themselves to the Lord. They're living sacrifices, as Romans 12 talks about. And it says they're in holy garments. They've been washed and cleansed. They have had their robes of sin taken away, and Christ has given them his robe of righteousness. So that's where uh, this holy band comes from. Christ's word going forth, conquering their hearts, cleansing them from sin. And his power will not wane. It says there that uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And that's talking about you know when, when the dew comes in the morning, the sun shines and then the dew's gone. But he's saying even from the morning, uh, your youth will, will not go away like the dew. It will be sustained. His power is not waning. His power is going forth. His word is going forth, and he's conquering the world for himself. So he's seated as a king. He's seated there as a prophet, but he's also seated there as a priest. It says there in verse 4, The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is kind of a shadowy figure in the book of Genesis. He interacted with Abraham. Abraham had a a mighty battle with several kings. He defeated these kings and Melchizedek came to him and it says there that Melchizedek was king of Salem. Well the word Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness and the word Salem means peace. So this Melchizedek, who is also a priest was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And he comes to Abraham, and Abraham pays tithes to him. So this great man Abraham even uh, shows homage to this person Melchizedek. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus Christ, picking up on Psalm 110, is a priest in the order 
of Melchizedek. He's not from the order of Levi. He's not of, uh, of Aaron's lineage. He's from the tribe of Judah. The priests in those days, in the Old Testament Israel, all and in the New Testament, came from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It says here, not of the tribe of Levi. And he was a great man. And it tells us in Hebrews 7, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So just like a priest represented the people before God, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father acting as a priest for us. He's interceding on our behalf there at the right hand of the Father. He goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the ones of the tribe of Levi, the Aaronic priests. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, like the priests of Aaron's did. But because he's of the, the order of Melchizedek and because he is who he is, it says he did this once for all when he offered himself. So he sacrificed himself. He became of the sacrifice that he presented to the God on our to God on our behalf and he's there representing us interceding for us what a great comfort it is that this one this risen savior he's alive fully god fully man at the right hand of the father as our prophet our priest and our king that should give us great comfort in this world where we see so much that that seems to be wrong and, and is wrong and the battle seems to be not going the way of the church and of Christians. But God knows what he's doing. Christ is on this throne, and he's our prophet, priest, and king. So take comfort in that fact today. But also take heed. It tells us here in this psalm that Jesus will return. He came the first time to show mercy and to, to lay down his life as a sacrifice. But the next time he comes, he's coming as a conquering king. He's coming in judgment. And it says there in verse 1 that his enemies will be made his footstool. I have a, a wonderful footstool. It's really a, a big part of an ottoman, I guess it is, in my office. And uh, when I'm sitting there studying, I prop my feet up on this thing. And it's very nice, very relaxing. I just prop my feet right up there and have my computer in my lap and I, I go to town or my books and I'm reading away. It's very comfortable. And that's the image you get here of Jesus. Enemies that hate the church, that hate Christ, that rise up against him, the powers of hell itself, one day he will pull them down and break them and shatter them, as it says, and he will prop his feet upon their necks. They will not oppose the king of kings. He will reign. Revelation 17, 14 says it really wonderfully. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. They're going to make war on them, but they will not defeat Him, because He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He's going to prop His feet up on the neck of His enemies one day and kick back and relax because he is the one who has conquered them. It's going to be an absolute, utter victory for Christ. 
And he is, it's going to be so easy for him. It's going to be like a man sitting uh, with a footstool under his feet. He is that powerful. And though the forces of evil are all around us and discourage us, we can think about that, that he is a great king and he will conquer his enemies. But he, will, he is going to come one day, a day of wrath, it tells us in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The day uh, of wrath is coming, and it's not just a day of wrath and anger being poured out, but a day of judgment, a day of justice, when right will be, will be declared and things will be made right. All that's broken, all that's sinful, all that's arrayed against what's right and true and good, uh, there will be judgment come down on that. As I said before, we are in the day of his mercy today, but the day of his wrath is coming, and we need to take heed of that. None shall stand who oppose him, not even the greatest men on earth. It says he will shatter kings, he will shatter chiefs, those who are the heads, the greatest men on earth. He will shatter them. It will be a day of justice. And it tells us here in verse 7 that he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And that's a strange verse to end on. But I think it speaks to the work that Christ has done. Uh, it's a hard work that he undertook. He sweat great drops of blood in securing his people for himself. To defeat sin and death and hell, he had to sacrifice himself. But he's been refreshed. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's drunk from the brook. He's finished his work. And there's only, this only thing that's left is for him to return and finalize that judgment. So take comfort today. There's no one person as secure as the one who has embraced Jesus as his or her prophet, priest, and king. Though it looks like we're in the most insecure per, uh, position uh, on earth, with, with all the forces of evil around us and all the immorality and, and the throwing off of the Christian principles, especially those upon which our, our country was founded, we are in a secure position because Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And when he returns in the day of judgment, all opposition to him will be put down. But on the flip, flip side, we need to take heed. There is no one as insecure as the person who has not embraced Jesus as his or her prophet, priest, and king. No matter how secure you feel at this moment, Jesus can return at any time to execute judgment. And if you're not one of those followers, that means you have de facto rejected him and his ways, and you will be found to be on the wrong side on that final day. Hope you consider these things and remember what Christ has done for you. He loves you so much. And we're coming to the table here in a few moments in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the great victory he has over death and hell and sin. He's a great savior. He's a great king. He's a great prophet and priest. Bow the knee to him. Embrace him as your Lord and savior. He has your best interests at heart. He wants to, to uh, heal you and save you and fix what's broken, and one day he's going to do that. 
But we must cry out to him and turn from our sin, turn from our rebellion against him, and submit and bow the knee to this great prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray together.